0: chapter eighteen of the herapath property by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain the rosewood box mr tertius dropped the telegram on the little table at which he and peggy were sitting and betrayed his feelings with a deep groan peggy who was just about to give him his second cup of tea set down her teapot and jumped to his side oh what is it she exclaimed some bad news please mr tertius pulled himself together and tried to smile you must forgive me my dear he said with a feeble attempt to speak cheerily i the truth is i think that i have lived in such a state of ease and yes luxury for so many years that i am not capable of readily bearing these trials and troubles i am ashamed of myself i must be braver not so easily affected but the telegram said Peggy, mr tertius handed it to her with a dismal shake of his head i suppose it's only what was to be expected after all that halfpenny told me this afternoon he remarked but i scarcely thought it would occur so soon my dear i'm afraid you must prepare yourself for a great deal of unpleasantness and worry your cousin seems to be determined to give much trouble. Extraordinary, most extraordinary. My dear, I confess I do not understand it. Peggy had picked up the telegram and was reading it with knitted brow. Barthop entered caveat in probate registry at half-past three this afternoon, she slowly repeated. But what does that mean, Mr. Tertius? Something to do with the will? A great deal to do with the will i fear replied mr tertius lugubriously a caveat my dear is some sort of process i'm sure i don't know whether it is given by word of mouth or if it is a document by which the admission to probate of a dead person's last will and testament can be stopped in plain language continued mr tertius your cousin barthorpe has been to the probate registry and done something to prevent mr halfpenny from proving the will it is a wicked action on his part and considering that he is a solicitor and that he saw the will with his own eyes it is as i have previously remarked most extraordinary all this means what asked Peggy. it means that there will be legal proceedings groaned mr tertius long tedious most annoying and trying proceedings perhaps a trial. We may have to go to court and give evidence. I dread it. I am, as I said, so used to a life of ease and freedom from anxiety that anything of this sort distresses me unspeakably. I fear I am degenerating into cowardice. Nonsense, said Peggy. It is merely that this sort of thing is disturbing, and we are not going to be afraid of Barthorpe. Barthorpe is very foolish. I meant always have meant, ever since I heard about the will, to share with him, for there's no law against that. But if Barthorpe wants to upset the will altogether and claim everything, I shall fight him. And if I win, as I suppose I shall, I shall make him do penance pretty heavily before he's forgiven. However, that's all in the future. What I don't understand about the present is, how can that will be upset? Mr. Halfpenny says it's duly and properly executed, witnessed, and so on. How can Barthorpe object to it? Mr. Tertius put down his cup and rose. Your cousin Barthorpe, my dear, is—I regret to say—a deep man. He replied, "He has some scheme in his head." This, he went on, picking up the telegram and placing it in his pocket, "This is the first step in that scheme." Well. It is perhaps a relief to know that he has taken it. We shall now know where we are and what has to be done. Quite so, said Peggy. But there is another matter, Mr. Tertius, which seems to be forgotten in this of the will. Pray, what is Barthorpe doing, what is anybody doing, about solving the mystery of my uncle's death? Everybody says he was murdered. Who is doing anything to find the murderer? Mr. Territus, who had advanced as far as the door on his way out of the room, came back to Peggy's side in a fashion suggestive of deep mystery, walking on the tips of his toes and putting a finger to his lips as he drew near his chair. "'My dear,' he said, bending down to her, and speaking in a tone fully as indicative of mystery as his tiptoe movement, a great deal is being done. But in the strictest secrecy most important investigations my dear the police the detective police you know the word at present to put it into one word vulgar but expressive the word is mum silence my dear the policy of the mole underground working you know from what i am aware of and from what our good friend halfpenny tells me and believes i gather that a result will be attained which will be surprising so long as justice is done remarked Peggy. that is all i want all we ought to aim at i don't care two pence about surprising or sensational discoveries i want to see my uncle's murderer properly punished she shed a few more quiet tears over jacob herapath's untoward fate when mr tertius had left her and fell to thinking about him the thoughts which came presently led her to go to the dead man's room a simple spartan-like chamber which she had not entered since his death she had a vague sense of wanting to be brought into touch with him through the things which had been his and for a while she wandered aimlessly about the room laying a hand now and then on the objects which she knew he must have handled the last time he had occupied the room his toilet articles, the easy chair in which he always sat for a few minutes every night, reading a little before going to bed, the garments which hung in his wardrobe, anything on which his fingers had rested. And as she wandered about, she noted not for the first time, nor the hundredth time, how Jacob Herapath had gathered about him in this room a number of objects connected with his youth. The very furniture, simple, homely stuff, had once stood in his mother's bedroom in a small cottage in a far-off country. On the walls were portraits of his father and mother, crude things painted by some local artist. There, too, were some samplers worked by his mother in her girlhood, flanked by some faded groups of flowers which she had painted about the same time. Jacob Herapath had brought all these things to his grand house in Portman Square years before and had cleared a room of fine modern furniture and fittings to make space for them he had often said to Peggy, when she grew old enough to understand that he liked to wake in a morning and see the old familiar things about him which he had known as a child for one object in that room he had a special veneration and affection an old rosewood workbox which had belonged to his mother and to her mother before her once he had allowed peggy to inspect it to take from it the tray lined with padded green silk to examine the various nooks and corners contrived by the eighteenth century cabinet maker some disciple maybe of chippendale or sheraton to fit the tarnished silver thimbles onto her own fingers to wonder at the knick-knacks of a departed age and to laugh over the scent of rose and lavender which hung about the skeins and spools and he had told her that when he died the rosewood box should be hers as long as he lived he said it must stand on his chest of drawers so that he could see it at least twice a day jacob herapath was dead now and buried and the rosewood box and everything else that had been his had passed to Peggy, as things were at any rate she presently walked up to the queer old chest of drawers and drew the rosewood box towards her and lifted the lid it was years since jacob had shown it to her and she remembered the childish delight with which she had lifted out the tray which lay on the top and looked into the various compartments beneath it now she opened the box again and lifted the tray and there lying bold and uncovered before her eyes she saw a letter inscribed with one word in jacob herapath's well-known handwriting peggy if jacob herapath himself had suddenly appeared before her in that quiet room the girl could scarcely have felt more keenly the strange and subtle fear which seized upon her as she realized that what she was staring at was probably some message to herself it was some time before she dared to lay hands on this message when at last she took the letter out of the box. Her fingers trembled so much that she found a difficulty in opening the heavily sealed envelope. But she calmed herself with a great effort and carrying the half sheet of note paper, which she drew from its cover over to the window, lifted it in the fading light and read the few lines which Jacob Herapath had scrawled there. If anything ever happened suddenly to me, my will duly executed and witnessed by Mr. Tartus and Mr. Frank Burchill, is in a secret drawer of my old bureau, which lies behind the third small drawer on the right-hand side. Jacob Herapath. That was all beyond the date, and the date was a recent one. If anything ever happened suddenly... Had he then felt some fear, experienced any premonition of a sudden happening why had he never said anything to her why but Peggy realized that such questions were useless at that time that time was preeminently one of action she put the letter back in the rosewood box took the box in her arms and carrying it off to her own room locked it up in a place of security and that had scarcely been done when kitteridge came seeking her and bringing with him a card Mr. Frank Burchill's card, and on it scribbled in a single line, Will you kindly give me a few minutes? Peggy considered this request in one flash of thought and turned to the butler. Where is Mr. Burchill, she asked, in the study? Very well. I will come down to him in a few minutes. She made a mighty effort to show herself calm, collected, and indifferent when she presently went down to the study. But she neither shook hands with the caller, nor asked him to sit. Instead, she marched across to the hearthrug and regarded him from a distance. Yes, Mr. Burchill, she said quietly, you wish to see me? She looked him over steadily as she spoke and noted a certain air of calm self-assurance about him which struck her with a vague uneasiness. He was too easy, too quiet, too entirely businesslike to be free from danger, and the bow which he gave her, was to her thinking the height of false artifice i wish to see you and to speak to you with your permission he answered i beg you to believe that what i have what i desire to say is to be said by me with the deepest respect the most sincere consideration i have your permission to speak then i beg to ask you if-i speak with deep courtesy if the answer which you made me to a certain question of mine some time ago, is, was, is to be final. So final that I am surprised that you should refer to the matter, replied Peggy. I told you so at the time. Circumstances have changed, he said. I am at a parting of the ways in life's journey. I wish to know definitely which way I am to take, a ray of guiding light from you. "'There will be none,' said Peggy sharply, "'not a gleam. "'This is a waste of time, if that is all you have to say.' The door to the study opened, and Selwood, who was still engaged about the house, came in. He paused on the threshold, staring from one to the other, and made as if to withdraw. But Peggy openly smiled on him. "'Come in, Mr. Selwood,' she said. "'I was just going to ask Kitteridge to find you.' i want to see both you and mr tertius then she turned to burchill who stood a well-posed figure in his fine raiment still watching her and made him a frigid bow there's no more to say on that point at any time she said quietly good day mr selwood will you ring the bell burchill executed another profound and self-possessed bow he presently followed the footman from the room, and Peggy, for the first time since Jacob Herapath's death, suddenly let her face relax and burst into a hearty laugh. End of chapter 18